the title of the series is called Written for Our Instruction. It comes from Romans, where Paul says that the Old Testament was written for us, that those stories happened to them, but they were for our benefit. And we benefit from those stories, and so hopefully you've benefited so far. We've thought a little bit about how Jesus is the only way to the Father. That is, who are we as Christians? What do we believe? What are we characterized by? We are characterized by a confession. A confession that Jesus is the only way. There's no other way. Secondly, we noticed last week that Jesus is King. We submit to His reign. We welcome His reign into our lives and we take refuge in Him. And tonight we're going to be thinking about the manna in the wilderness. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dive in. Father, we come and acknowledge that we need you tonight. We need you to take your word. We need you to break it for us. We need you to feed it to us. Father, we we long to feed on Christ. We long to trust in Christ. And I ask that as your word goes out, as we study this word, you would increase our faith. You would increase our capacity to trust you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turned in the Old Testament to Exodus 16, Exodus 16 is the story of the manna uh, that was given to the Israelites in the wilderness. The story comes immediately after the crossing of the Red Sea. If you remember, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God brings them out by a mighty hand, by a mighty arm. He brings them out, He delivers them. They cross the Red Sea, whereas Pharaoh and his armies are overthrown. And immediately after the crossing of the Red Sea, we're presented with two stories. The first is a story of thirst. The second is a story of hunger. And it is particularly the second story that we're interested in tonight. But both of these stories speak of a need. They speak of people grumbling and then God graciously providing for their need. And so we are looking at Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. I want to just begin with these first two verses. Then they, that's the Israelites, set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. So we're told that the congregation of Israel journeyed into the wilderness, uh, and they're in this wilderness, and it's been about a month. This is what we're being told here. It's been about a month since they crossed the Red Sea. And they have run out of food. They're out of provisions, and they're hungry. I remember the, st- the story of a youth pastor who wanted to communicate a life lesson to his youth group. And so he decided he was going to take them on this hike. Uh, up this mountain, and all the youth, you know, were excited to go on this hike outdoors, and they're all, you know, got ready, and they got out of the cars, and they, they're at the trailhead, and they start hiking, and the goal was to hike to the top of this mountain and have lunch there at the top of this mountain. I heard this story, I don't know where I heard this story, so if somebody knows where the story, but anyway, they, they, they get to the top of this mountain, and the youth pastor says, oh, and by the way, 
we forgot the lunches back down at the cars. See, on the way up, they were happy, they were cheerful, they were having a good time and cracking jokes. And then when he made, he broke that news to them, the atmosphere just changed in a heartbeat. The mood changed. And all they could do was turn around and go back down, hungry. And they weren't too happy. Now, I don't, I don't even know what the point was that the youth pastor was trying to communicate. But our point tonight is that in essence, this is what God is doing. He's planned a hike, and he's left the food behind. And they are grumbling and complaining because of this. And so you see verse 3. What do they do? Well, the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now they're speaking to Moses but they're also sort of speaking to God. You brought us into this wilderness to kill us. They wish they had never left Egypt. And they're accusing Moses and ultimately God of conspiring to kill them. Note that there's really no trust here in God. There's no trust in Him. There's no belief in His goodness. Although they've seen Him, you know, deliver them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. But they lack Faith. Well, what is God's response? It's a gracious response, and you see it there in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. And so God is going to provide bread from heaven for the people. And now the rest of the chapter is really a bunch of instructions on how they are to gather this bread and how that is to happen. And so they're to gather it daily. And on Friday, they're to gather twice as much so that they won't have to work on the Sabbath day. And then the people, of course, some of the people don't obey. And, they, and God gets upset. How long do you refuse to obey me, to follow my instructions? Israel is told to preserve some of the manna so that they might, subsequent generations might remember how God provided for his people in the wilderness. And then finally in verse 35, and I want you to read this with me, uh, we read this, The sons of Israel ate the manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Okay, so I want to make a few observations here briefly um, before we move forward. First of all, God's provision of, man, of the manna was gracious. Would you agree with me? This was a gracious provision. They didn't deserve it. They were grumbling. And God, though, in response to their grumbling, not just their grumbling, but their accusations, He provides them with what they don't deserve, with food. Secondly, God's provision was humbling. It was a humbling provision. And in a sense, all eating is humbling. Have you ever thought about that? Eating is an acknowledgement that we are human. God doesn't eat. He doesn't need food. But if we go without food for any length of time, we get into trouble, don't we? We need to eat. So think about that. Every time you stop and eat a meal, you're in a sense acknowledging. You're being humble. That's a good thing. You're acknowledging your humanity, that you are less than God. But more than this, the way God provides is humbling. 
The way he provided the manna forced them to daily recognize their need for God and his provision, right? This daily provision. It was humbling to be placed in a situation where they're entirely dependent on God. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where you're entirely dependent on another person. I've been there. It's very humbling. It's quite uncomfortable. We don't like it. But this is what God does for his people. Third, note that the provision of the manna was without variation. Now this has always intrigued me and I think there's a point to this that we'll draw out later tonight. But think of it. I mean, creation is full of variety. I mean, you look out, there's variety everywhere and all kinds of food and and yet he feeds his people with manna every day for 40 years. Why? Well, we'll find out later. Um, But there's no variety. It's the same manna. Maybe there were different ways you could prepare the manna. But it was the same manna. And we're told later in the book of Numbers that the people grew tired of the manna. They grew tired. I mean, I would have grown tired of the manna. Would you have grown tired? The same food every single day for 40 years? All right, next. God's provision of manna required time and effort. It, it took time to gather the manna. It took time and effort to prepare it. This wasn't fast food. These weren't Big Macs falling from the sky. We are told that it was like coriander seed, which is quite small. And if you think about trying to pick up small little seeds on the ground, enough to feed a family, that could take a few hours every day. And we are told in another passage that this seed needed to be ground into flour and prepared and cooked and eaten. This takes time. This takes effort. It's very interesting. God doesn't just give them prepared food. All of this is fascinating. And then we learn that God, we, we see that God's provision was daily. This kind of connects with the humbling aspect. It emphasized Israel's dependence on God. If God doesn't send the manna, we all go hungry, right? But he won't give us any extra. <laughs> he only gives us enough for today. And if we try to put, you know, gather some and... and, and and keep it and preserve it for tomorrow, it all goes bad. You know, we, we, can't, we can't even store it up. We can't even gain a little bit of independence and security. They had to trust in God's sufficiency and they had to give up on their own self-sufficiency. You know, when you plant seeds and water and reap, you can subtly begin to think that you did it. That you're a great farmer. I'm a great farmer. And we take credit for it when we go to work. And we work all week and then we get a paycheck and then we take that money, we go to the grocery store and we buy food. We can subtly begin to think, I'm a great provider. Right? I'm providing for the needs of my family. And we take credit for it. But there was no way that the Israelites could take credit for what was happening every single day. There's no way. They were entirely dependent on God. And then finally, we see that God's provision of manna sustained life. The manna sustained the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. Think about that. We're told that there were 600,000 men, 20 years and up, which probably tells us that there's close to 2 million people, including women and children. That's a lot of food every single day for 40 years. 
and it sustained the Israelites. Now, what was the purpose of all of this? Well, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is an incredible chapter, and I would encourage you to read the whole thing. Um, I'm just pointing certain things out this tonight, but but read the whole thing. It's It's a wonderful chapter, an encouraging chapter. Deuteronomy literally means second law. Moses is re-giving the law to the second generation of Israelites, those who will go into the land of Canaan. And so this is 40 years after Exodus 16, in a sense, the setting of it. The people of Israel, it's a whole different people at this point, they're ready to go into the land, into that, there's that second parting of the sea, this time the Jordan River, right? And they're about to go in and... Moses gives them instructions right before his death. And Deuteronomy 8 is important because it gives us the theological reason for the manna. That's the theological reason for the manna. Moses is looking back and he's explaining to the people, why did God do what he did? Why did he feed you with manna? Why did he let you go hungry? It's because he wanted to teach them a profound lesson. So let's read this one verse. Chapter 8, Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And we read, He humbled you. This is God humbled the Israelites. He humbled you and let you be hungry. Now just stop there for a moment. Isn't that fascinating? God says, I let you be hungry. So God has an absolute control of their hunger. He let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. See, that's, that's the lesson he wanted them to get. That's why, that's why you've got the manna. Because he wanted them to get one lesson. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. The experience of life, life in the fullest sense, is much more than simply having your physical needs met. You realize that? It's a lot more than that. Jesus says life is more than food. Is it not? Life is more than clothing. Is it not? It's more than a new car. It's more than a relationship. It's more than an experience on this earth. Life is more than that. Life is hearing and trusting and heeding every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Life is a relationship of trust in the living God. You hear that? Now I want to be clear here. God made us both physical and spiritual beings. I believe that. We're both physical and spiritual, intertwined. And if we're going to live, we do need physical food. We don't want to fall into this the Gnostic heresy. The third years are studied Gnosticism not too long ago. Gnosticism is that, this idea that we must suppress the physical in order to ascend to the spiritual. That the physical is really bad, the spiritual is good, and we need to suppress this. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that God created everything, and he created it good. The physical is important. But there's a problem. What's the problem? There's actually a few problems that we have. First of all, the big problem is Adam and Eve, our parents, fell into sin. 
And when they fell into sin, they died spiritually. And we inherited that spiritual death. What do I mean by that spiritual death? Our relationship with God was severed. That relationship with God was broken. We were just talking about that on Sunday, that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. That's where we were. And because of this brokenness, we have a deep, you could, you, could, you could picture it this way, we have a deep spiritual void within us. We have an emptiness within us. But there's another problem that we have. And the other problem is that we have a deep distrust in God. Have you noticed that? It's hard for us to trust God. We distrust Him because we've turned our backs on Him. And so we do not believe He is good. And you see that in the Israelites, right? They immediately, as soon as they're in trouble and they have hunger, they immediately accuse God of wanting to murder them. They lash out at God. So what do we do? Well, we use physical and material in this external world to try to fill the void that's within the emptiness that is within. But you see, that emptiness can only be filled with an infinite God. And there's nothing infinite on this earth. And this is why God is saying to us what He's saying to us. And he, this is why He's saying it the way He is saying it in Deuteronomy 8.3. It's not that we don't need bread. No, nobody says, man doesn't live by bread, what? That next word is critical. Alone, Right? We need bread, but we need more than bread, right? That's the point. That's the lesson. We need more than clothing. We need to enter into a relationship with God that is characterized by trust in his word. How are we doing so far? Is it making sense? This is a major problem with humanity, especially the Western world. We think that we can live by bread alone. We really believe that. We can live by bread alone. All we need is the physical. All we need is what we can see, the empirical. And this is the whole point of the story of the manna. The Israelites were blind to their real need. They thought they just needed food. Give us food and we're fine. That's all we need. And God was trying to show them that they needed something more than food. They needed God himself. They needed the creator of the food. They needed a relationship with him. They needed to learn to trust him. Now, at this point, Exodus 16, the story of the manna, and Deuteronomy 8.3 is connecting then like a spider web or like ripples in a lake backwards and forwards throughout the whole Bible. It's quite like, whoa, we could not cover all the connections that are being made at this point. And I was going to just skip this but I'm going to just throw out some connections, a few, for you to study on your own later, okay? Um, just because it's so fascinating, okay? So the first connection that I just want to point out that's being made, and we're not going to pursue these, is that Exodus 16 and Deuteronomy 8.3, they interact with the creation story. Where do you see words coming out of the mouth of God? Well, you see it in Genesis 1, right? He speaks and everything comes into life. Genesis 1 and 2, then Genesis 2, you have God speaking and it sustains life, right? As long as Adam and Eve heed it, they live. They disobey it, they die, right? So his, his words sustain life. And then you get to 
Genesis 3. And isn't it fascinating that the temptation of Adam and Eve revolves around food, eating? It's just fascinating to me. And what happens? Well, they choose to ignore God's word and to listen to Satan's word and to eat the forbidden fruit and they died, right? So there's interaction there. I'll let you explore the rest. Exodus 16 interacts with John 1, Deuteronomy 8.3, John 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word, the word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now this is connecting now with Genesis and with Deuteronomy and with Exodus, connect, making all these connections. The word that came out of the mouth of God by which he created all things is a person. It's a being. It's the Son of God. John says it's Jesus Christ who has come that we might have life, who has come to bring revelation from God. All right, I'll let you explore that one further. You see an interaction with the temptation narrative. This is a fascinating one. Jesus has just been in the wilderness for how long? 40 days. Connects with that 40-year period. And he's hungry. And Satan comes to him, which kind of connects with Genesis, right? The temptation in Genesis 3. And what is the temptation over? Guess what? Food. Turn these rocks into bread. Isn't that fascinating? Meet your physical needs. Don't trust your Father to provide for you. Life only consists in meeting your physical needs. Life is bread alone. I think that's the temptation. It has to be the temptation because how does Jesus respond? With Deuteronomy 8.3, Man does not live by bread alone. There's something more. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. All right, one more um, that I thought was interesting is Romans 10.17. In Romans 10.17, we read that faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. And this also, I believe, connects all sorts of things in our minds. Because what was God trying to teach the children of Israel? Faith. And how are they going to express faith? How are they going to have faith by responding to his word? That's all the way through Scripture. Okay, so I made some connections. Now you forget all of what I just said there. Pack it up. Go revisit it sometime later. Now we're going to come back to where we're going. Turn to John 6. Okay, so we, we thought about the Old Testament story and some of the significance of that Old Testament story. But now we want to turn to John chapter 6. And the background here in John chapter 6 is... Jesus is in Galilee. John chapter 6. Jesus is in Galilee. This is near the Passover. Messianic fervor is running unusually high. The crowd is following Jesus because they're seeing the signs and wonders that he is performing on the sick, healing the sick. And now there are 5,000 men besides women and children who are there surrounding him. And Jesus wants to feed them. Of course, this is, again, exploding with connections. You know, if you're thinking about what we just read and listened and thought about. And he turns to Philip, 
his disciple and he asks Philip, which is always quite intriguing that he even turns to his disciple because he knows what he's going to do. But he turns to Philip and says, you know, where are we going to find food? You know, where are we going to buy food for all this multitude? Well, what is Jesus doing? Well, he's always trying to elicit faith from his disciples. He's try, always trying to get them to trust in him. But Philip kind of misses what Jesus is trying to do here and goes, what are you talking about, Jesus? You know, you know, $20,000 wouldn't be enough for this multitude. You know, like, <laughs> where are we going to find food? We're going to find money. You know, you're crazy. But then five loaves of barley bread and two fish are presented to Jesus. And Jesus, the word, John 1, 1, does what he has done from the beginning. And he creates bread. And he feeds that entire multitude. See, he's the word of God. He's the creator of all things. And he creates bread. Well, the people on experiencing this miracle, of course, they want to take Jesus and make him king. But Jesus withdraws from them. And Jesus and his disciples make their way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd starts looking for him. They can't find him, so they, they, they eventually find him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And we pick up in verse 25. That's where we're going to pick up here. And they ask him a question. And they ask the question, Rabbi, when did you get here? Like, when, when did you get here? Now, Jesus knows that these people are not so much interested in him, they're interested in another meal. They want more bread. They thought that was pretty cool. They like the idea of a free meal. They say, well, we could do this every day, couldn't we? You know, free meal with Jesus. Soup kitchen, you know, let's go. <laughs> let's, let's get this thing going. Now, think about this. This is a little bit like deja vu, isn't it? You're reading the story and you're like, wait a minute. I've seen this before, right? Just like the people in the wilderness, these people think that all they need is physical food. Give me physical food, I'll be good. I'll be all right. And Jesus knows that he could create physical food for them again and again and again. But he also knows that that physical food will not meet their real need. See that? It won't meet their real need because he knows that man doesn't live by bread alone. We live by something more than bread, by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so Jesus responds in verse 26, and you can follow with me in John chapter 6, 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the... which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. See, Jesus is the Word. He is the food that can produce eternal life in his hearers. And I guess I missed a few blanks here, but the rest of the chapter spins out of this. The people are thinking in physical terms. They're thinking about physical food that can fill their physical bellies, and Jesus is thinking on a totally different level. He's thinking about spiritual food, which can meet their spiritual need. In order to explain what he means, Jesus is now going to compare himself to the manna that Israel ate in the wilderness. And so I want us to read a section here. I think it's important for us to read it. 
and to see what Jesus is saying, see that he is claiming this very thing. So I want us to read a section, just follow along with me, beginning in verse 28. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you may believe, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Well, what, are they, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Now, it seems ridiculous that they're even asking him for a sign because he just multiplied bread the day before. But here they're asking for more signs. It says, Our father ate man in the wilderness, verse 31, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. But Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to him, listen carefully. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. The promises here are too good. I mean, we just have to let this soak, let this wash over us. We have to hear these promises. Listen to what he says. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who believes the Son and beholds the Son, excuse me, and believes in him, will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Well, the people begin to grumble. It seems to be a characteristic of the children of Israel. Well, maybe us too. But they begin to grumble over his words. And I'm going to just pick up here again in verse 48. Maybe 47. It's too good. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. He says it again, right? Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they what? They died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man. I know how he ramps it up here. So far he's kept it okay, eat the, you know, somewhat ambiguous, but here he gets more specific. And what he's saying is even a little more radical. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. You can see particular themes emphasized over and over and over again. And there's so much here. 
and we can only scratch the surface but we want to at least scratch the surface so a few points I want to make here first of all the manna what does the manna point to well it clearly points to Jesus but more than just Jesus it points to Jesus sacrificed for us I want you to note the language here that Jesus uses Jesus is particularly in this last section beginning in verse 52 and following he tells us that we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood what is Jesus pointing to what is he trying to say well he's not thinking cannibalistic thoughts okay everybody relax (laughs) not cannibalistic thoughts but what is he doing he's pointing towards the giving of his flesh and blood as an atoning sacrifice for man's sin See, Jesus knows he's going to a cross. And he knows that on that cross, his body will be broken, his blood will be spilled, and that will produce life for mankind. That is man's only hope. That is our only hope, that he take our punishment, right? That he take our sin, and he bleed, and he die. And so the manna points to Jesus, it points to his sacrifice. Secondly, eating and drinking, what is that? How are we to understand that? Well, look at verse 35. I think Jesus makes it clear what he's really talking about. Uh, Jesus is not trying to hide the truth here. He makes it very explicit. He says, He who comes to me will not hunger. Eating is coming to Jesus. He who believes in me will not never thirst. Believing in Jesus is drinking. You, you see the metaphors, how the metaphors work here in this section. So coming to drinking, uh, believing in Jesus. All these these metaphors are working in this way. And then one more point I want to make before we really dive into our application is this. Jesus is not just describing a one-time event. That once upon a time, you know, if, if at some point in your life you turn to me and you have faith in me, you trust in me, then boom, you know, You'll have life forever. But he's talking, and he makes it clear that he's talking about a continual feeding on Christ. And I want you to see that, particularly in verse 53 and 54. In verse 53, he says, unless you eat, note that verb there, you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. It sounds more like a one-time event, right? But note the very next verse, how he changes tenses. Grammar is important, and it communicates theology. Note the change in tense in 54. He who who what? Eats. That little S makes a world of difference. It's not just he who, the one who has eaten once, but it's the one who continually eats and drinks, who feeds on Christ. This person will be raised up on the last day. That is, Jesus is emphasizing emphasizing a continual coming to, a continual trusting in Jesus, in himself. All right, are we clear on these three points? Those are kind of, I want to settle these. Is that you see them in the text? You're with me on that? And now we're going to dive into application. And I want to make the same points I made in the Old Testament section. So here we go. Just as the manna was gracious, so God's provision of Jesus Christ is gracious. See, Jesus is inviting us into a relationship with himself. 
a relationship that needs to be that will be characterized by trust in him but in order for that to be possible he must come down from heaven as the bread right he must come down as the bread of life and we don't deserve this do we deserve Jesus' sacrifice we don't it's all grace it's all mercy in fact we are told in Romans that it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us we did not contribute anything to our salvation he did it all right he paid it all and Jesus as manna is God's greatest gift to us do you see that this tonight do you see that that do you see the graciousness of God on your behalf in giving you his son that you might live you might trust in him and live. That's the first point. Second point. Just as eating the manna taught the Israelites humility, so trusting in Jesus teaches us humility. What is humility? You could say humility is a true and accurate assessment of who I am before God. It is coming to the realization of who I really am. No more deception. Who are those who come to Jesus? Who are those who trust in Jesus? It's those who understand they need Jesus. They recognize their need for Christ. We're not going to come to him unless we sense that spiritual hunger. And so this is why Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The problem is that our sin often blinds us to our spiritual need. Sin blinds us to a, our, to what, to a recognition to an understanding of our need for Christ. And only God can awaken us to our spiritual need. And this is why I believe Jesus emphasizes in this passage, he emphasizes the truth that no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. Unless the Father works in your life, unless he works in my life, unless the Father opens your eyes and my eyes to our need for Jesus, not just once, but day after day after day, our need for Jesus, we won't come to him. We won't trust in him. And we won't experience life. And you know how God often opens our eyes? Let me tell you how God often opens our eyes to our need. He creates difficult circumstances in our life that are beyond our capacity. He lets us go hungry, as it says in Deuteronomy 8.3. And those are gracious. That's God's grace. That's God's kindness. Because he wants to teach us to trust. He wants to teach us. So do you realize your need of Jesus? Do you have a sense of your spiritual, of spiritual hunger and if not, ask God to open your eyes to that. Because the reality is we have great need. We have constant need for Jesus Christ. All right, we move on. Just as God did not vary the Israelites' diet, so he does not vary our diet. Now, this is what I was saying was, I thought so fascinating that God does not vary his people's diet, the same food for 40 years, but I believe that at least in part he was doing it to communicate an important lesson, particularly to us. Remember, it's written for our instruction. And that, that is that as God's people, 
we never get to a point in our experience where we stop needing to trust in Jesus. Can we just say that? We never get to a point where we graduate from Jesus. Oh, I graduated from Christ. Now I can move on to the next thing. There is no next thing. It's Jesus all the way. It's trust in him all the way. Faith is always a turning to Jesus and a turning to his sacrifice as the answer to my every need. Whatever that need is, and I'm talking about real needs in real life, it's a turning to him. There's a danger in the Christian life, I believe, of getting tired of the life of faith. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where you get tired of trusting in Jesus, tired of living by faith. And we want to get to a point where maybe we can coast for a while, right? Where we have some independence, where we can let our guard down. There is a big movement in the United States called FIRE. It's an acronym that stands for Financially Independent Retire Early. It's a big movement. I don't know if you've noticed it. 30, it's, the goal of the movement is to retire by, the, by your 30s or 40s. And they say you have to put 50% of your money into savings, well, into investments in order to get there. But what drives all of this? Well, we, we want a sense of self-sufficiency, a sense of independence, a sense of security, right? There, there's something that drives that, that motivates us to do that. But in the Christian life, there's no early retirement from the life of faith. In fact, hate to break it, there is no late retirement from the life of faith. Charles Stephen writes, Nothing reveals what we really are in our spiritual state so much as our attitude towards the manna. Does Christ satisfy? Are we taken up with him? Or are we growing tired of him? Are we tired, growing tired of trusting in him? Have we moved on perhaps to other things? If so, we need to turn back to Christ. So he does not vary the diet, I believe, purposefully. Third, just as the manna, or maybe fourth, I'm not sure where we are, third, just as the manna demanded time and effort, so believing in Jesus demands time and effort. Now, I realize that what I say here could get me in serious trouble. And so I've thought through this quite a bit in terms of thinking, how am I going to communicate this? But I want you to look back at verse 27. Verse 27, chapter 6, verse 27. It's fascinating what happens here. Jesus says, do not work for the food which perishes. But, and this is the implication, work, right, for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father has set his seal. And they say, well, well how, do we, how do we work this work? And Jesus says in 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him. The work is believing in Jesus Christ. Now, what I find interesting here is Jesus does not place faith in opposition to works. This is the danger zone. I'm getting it. Okay. But our work is to believe in Jesus. That is, he describes faith as work. Now, I want to be absolutely crystal clear here. Salvation in Jesus Christ is a gift of God. Amen. Okay? It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. Amen. 
It's salvation is not God's response to some good effort on your part or my part. Okay, I'm trying to be crystal clear here. Faith has nothing to do with self-effort. But, and this is what I think is important for us to understand, faith does have something to do with God-dependent effort. You hear what I'm saying? The New Testament speaks much of this. True faith expresses itself in activity, in work, in effort, in time, in commitment. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul praises the Thessalonians for their work of faith. Paul speaks of fighting the good fight of faith. It speaks of activity, action. And what is the point? What's the point I'm trying to get across here? Sometimes we can think that the life of faith is a passive thing. You know, we just sit back and trust in Jesus. You know, take a nap. But the New Testament and scriptures describe faith as being full of activity. It's a vibrant thing. Faith is vibrant. Faith is full of activity. God doesn't spoon feed us. He gives us Christ. He gives us the word of Christ. He gives us the spirit of Christ. He gives us the sacrifice of Christ. He gives us new life in Jesus Christ. He gives us communion with Jesus Christ. But we have to take these up, don't we? We have to make use of these. We have, in a sense, to grind the manna into flour and bake it and chew on it. An illustration is the fact that you're here tonight. Perhaps you're watching online. And your being here is taking up your time. And I assume effort to try to understand what in the world I'm trying to say. But I hope that you're here as an act of faith. I hope that you're here because you want to feed on Christ. Because you understand that life is more than just food. It's more than bread, but it's words that proceed out of the mouth of God. It's Jesus Christ ultimately. If you're going to feed on Christ, if I'm going to feed on Christ, we are going to have to learn to gather up his word, to study it, to meditate on it. We're going to have to learn to come to Jesus in the midst of real life circumstances, in the midst of real difficulties. We're going to have to learn to exercise faith in Christ. We're going to have to learn to fellowship with Christ. Maybe you've seen those people on the side of the road and they hold a sign that says, we'll work for food. We'll work for food. Well, my friends, as God opens our eyes to our spiritual hunger, let us be willing to work for food. Let us be willing to work for the food that endures to eternal life. Let us make every effort to actively trust in Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. Next point. Just as the Israelites ate the manna daily, so we trust in Jesus daily. Generally, when someone invites you to their home for a meal, it's because they want to spend time with you. I assume that that's the reason. They want to spend. They want to get to know you. Now, imagine that a person invites you over for a meal every single day. What do you think they're trying to communicate? They don't want to just know you superficially, right? 
They want to really know you. They want a deep relationship with you. They want you to come over every single day. And in a sense, this is what God is doing for us. He's inviting us to a meal every single day. He wants us to feed on Christ again and again and again. What do I mean by feed on Christ? He wants us to come to him and put our trust in him again and again and again and again, day after day after day. It's true that Jesus came once for all, did he not? And yet our eating is not once for all. But we are encouraged to chew on him, to drink of him continually. And the language that Jesus describes here is one of a daily relationship that is characterized by trust. Trust in him. I tell my kids this when we do devotions sometimes after, uh, when we do devotions after supper, I tell them this sometimes that just as we need physical food for our physical bodies, we need spiritual food for our spiritual life. Marie, my wife, just went apple picking not too long ago, and she um, brought home a lot of apples. <laughs> she bought these reject apples in order to make applesauce. And she worked, well, she got it all done in a day, but in one day she made a lot of applesauce, enough to fill up our whole freezer. And why did she do that? Well, she, she did that so that we could enjoy applesauce all year without having to do all the work to get that applesauce again and again and again. But the Christian life is not like that. <laughs> the Christian life is not like that. We can't store up our faith. Just as the Israelites couldn't store up the manna, we can't store up our faith for difficult times. Faith has to be exercised again and again and again. That is what I'm trying to say is you can't trust in Jesus for those circumstances that are out ahead that you don't know about. You can't store up faith for what you will face tomorrow. You can exercise faith in Jesus today. You can put your trust in Jesus today for the situations you face today. But you can't pray extra today and then go without it tomorrow. You can't read two chapters today and take a vacation tomorrow. If so, we could give our students a certificate after two years, you know, of intense Bible study and praying. Guess what? You don't have to pray or read your Bible for the next 10 years of your life. You know, you're good. But that's not how it works. It's not how the manna works. It's daily, daily we trust in Christ. Are you trusting in Jesus right now? This is important, right? It's not just I trusted in Jesus once upon a time, but is there a life of trusting in Jesus day after day? Have you consciously, just ask yourself this question, have you consciously, consciously come to Jesus today with a need and put your trust in him for that need today? Did you do it? We need to do it. We need Jesus every day. But I'm going to end here with a contrast. So far we've had parallels, but here is a contrast. A manna only sustained life for 40 years. And Jesus makes this point. They died in the wilderness, but the one who feeds on Christ will live forever. That's an incredible promise. 
Many of you know my grandmother. Her name is Ann Dykstra. She has faithfully come to these meetings for many, many, many years, and she would sit right there with my grandfather. And if she were here tonight, she would be probably the most engaged person of all, finishing my sentences for me, helping me to preach this session. My grandmother tonight, though, is lying at home, at home in her bed, very, very close to departing from this world. I went to visit her this afternoon, and I was able to tell her that I was going to talk about her tonight and use her as my final illustration. And she could not, she did not even have the strength to really, she, she, she wasn't able to say anything back, but she could, she kind of nodded and she barely opened her mouth. She was, she, I could tell she understood what I was saying. My grandmother was an, is, a, is an extraordinary woman who has lived out a life of faith, a life of trust in Jesus Christ. I've seen her do it. I've seen her feed on Christ, not just once upon a time, but day after day after day. I've seen her walk through life facing difficulties and trusting in Christ. And so I've been asking myself this question this past week as I've been thinking about all this. I've been asking myself this question. Will my grandmother die? Will she die? Now, in one sense, yes, right? She will die. In one sense, we will all die. That is, that physical part of her will die. But then I ask myself the question, will she die, though? And I say, no. In another sense, she will not die. Why? Because she understands that life is more than food. Life is more than physical. There was a point in her life. You know, she, she was dead in her trespasses and sins, like all of us. But there was a point in her life where the God opened her eyes and she understand this word and she placed her faith in Jesus Christ and she became alive. Inside, deep inside, she became alive. She became a new creation. And that life that Jesus Christ gave to her when she put her faith in him is never going to be taken away from her. In that sense, she will not die, but will go on living. And the promise that Jesus makes in this passage is that there is a day coming. I was telling her this in her bed. I was saying, Grandma, there's a day coming and you're going to have to wait for us that Jesus Christ will come back and he will raise us all up from the dead and we will experience physical life once again. Isn't that a wonderful promise? That if you will feed on Christ, if you will put your trust in Christ day after day after day, the promise is you will never die. You will live forever. So what are you facing right now? I want you to think about this question, what difficulties has God sovereignly placed into your life? Feeding on Jesus means turning to him, trusting in him, trusting in his sacrifice in the middle of real life circumstances, real difficulties. Cry out to him, Lord Jesus, I need you. 
I've sinned again. I need you to wash me. I need you to cleanse me. I need your help to overcome the sin. Lord Jesus, I don't know which, what decision to make in this, in this. I need your wisdom. I don't know which way to go. Show me the way. Lord Jesus, this is a difficult relationship I'm in. Show me how to love. Show me the way of love. Help me. I need you. And that's, that's trust. That's eating. That's drinking. Lord, my body's broken. <laughs> Give me the strength to do your will. That's feeding on Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Apply it to our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.